0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to a special episode of The Lost Debate Show. This is Ravi Gupta. And today I have a special guest, uh, Jeannie Sue Gerson, who is the John H. Watson, Jr. Professor of Law at Harvard Law School, where she has taught constitutional law, criminal law, procedure, family law, and the law of art, fashion, and the performing arts. Uh, she's also written many pieces for the new yorker about some of the topics we're going to talk about today including affirmative action you may remember her from our earlier episodes on affirmative action about a year ago when we set the stage for the decisions that we'll talk about today uh genie welcome to the podcast thank you all right well a year ago we talked about the inevitable uh, result that just happened a couple months ago this uh, 6-3 decision of the supreme court to essentially strike down affirmative action. Uh, was there anything surprising? I, I feel like there was so much that you'd anticipated in the earlier conversation we had, but in reading that decision, was there anything you were like, whoa, I did not expect that?
1: No, there wasn't anything that surprised me greatly, but there were a few things that, I, that were notable to me. There was some suspense beforehand about how much the decision would focus on discrimination against Asian Americans in particular. And that was answered by the decision being not very much focused on that.
0: <laughs> they, it seems like the concurrences, or what do you even call them? Like, what would you call them? I'm such a bad law student. Non-controlling Concur- opinions. Yeah, concurrences. Uh, they, it seems like Thomas and Gorsuch had something to say about the subject, but Roberts had very little to say about it. If I'm remembering, that's right.
1: right. I think Roberts was very um, minimalistic. Um he said what he needed to say and he got out. And then the others, including Gorsuch and, and Justice Thomas, both of them addressed the issues in a longer, more in-depth way and focused on the things that they were particularly interested in. And I think it was Justice Thomas who did make that comment about how he didn't think that the right answer to discrimination against African Americans in this country was now to discriminate against Asian Americans. He didn't think that that was a good remedy to the former kind of discrimination. So he did say that. And then there were some comments from Justice Gorsuch that also addressed the issue. But overall, the the decision was just about getting rid of affirmative action and didn't particularly involve a
0: vindication of the issue of discrimination against Asian Americans. And why do you think that is? Like, because i feel like you and i had spoken about this and you did a lot of reporting about the trial itself where there was ample evidence at trial especially that you know that not only was this a disparate impact situation but there were some questionable intentions on the on the part of harvard i was expecting when i'd read this opinion given like how public this document is compared to a lot of other Supreme Court decisions, and I don't even mean by public is, like the, the you know, a lot of people in my life who don't read Supreme Court opinions seem to at least read this opinion or read considerable excerpts of it. It seems like they could have made a stronger case in the particulars of what Harvard was up to, because there are all these points of, Harvard, of Roberts's decision where he talks about how college admissions is a zero-sum game, right? And I think this is like a key part of his decision where he, he essentially makes the argument that Harvard and other universities treat their use of race as a plus, but don't acknowledge it as a minus, uh, and that when it's a zero-sum game, that's how it works. I, I think they could have gone an, a step further to say, well, and here's how that works in practice and why we should be uncomfortable with that. And I found it odd that he didn't go that far, you know? Well, I think that it has to do with the fact that he didn't need to. He just, that it was not,
1: needed. What he was essentially holding in that opinion, what he was explaining was that the practice of considering race in admissions in itself, regardless of who is on the winning or losing end of that equation, is a violation of equal protection. So it did it didn't really matter that it was Asian Americans or white people or anyone else who was the plaintiff. It didn't really truly matter because just the fact of considering race, regardless of how it ends up coming out, is itself a violation of the law. That was what he wanted to say. So, whether Asian Americans were particularly intentionally discriminated against, and remember, the trial was really about whether Asians were discriminated against compared to white people, Mm -hmm. right? It was white applicants versus Asian American applicants, were they treated the same or were they treated differently? That was what the trial was about. But this case in the Supreme Court was not focused on whites versus Asians. This case in the Supreme Court was focused on a really different question, which is if you consider race at all consciously in the admissions decision, right, whether it's a plus or a minus, is that in itself a violation? of equal protection. And so it didn't really matter whether Asians were intentionally discriminated against or not. Do you see what I mean? They're they're yeah. very distinct things. Like it just hear you. truly didn't matter. The court could have found the district court at trial could have found that Asian Americans were discriminated against or weren't discriminated against and you would still have the same case in the Supreme
0: Court. Yeah, and I, and maybe I'll put a pin in for a second this question of the plus and minus cuz one I think underrated aspect of this is that the plus, according to this court, is a minus, which I actually do think is going to be really relevant for some cases coming down the line, like this Thomas Jefferson case. Uh, But let's hold that thought for a second, because there was one other thing that you wrote about that I thought was interesting, which is this sentence, you know, given how deliberate Roberts was in the decision and, and in a sense like efficient he was compared to some of the other decisions, you know, sidebar is that sometimes I feel like Gorsuch and Thomas are sometimes writing political documents in addition to legal documents, like they're having an argument that they don't need to necessarily have. Roberts, though, doesn't seem to have like sort of casual sides, but he did write, nothing, and this is a quote from him, nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. And I think this raises a question of, you know, whether race blind is the same as race neutral. And this question uh, that you wrote about uh, recently as it relates to legacy admissions about whether we can revisit this sort of conversation that was tabled in Baki about societal discrimination and slavery. And you did like a pretty thorough write-up recently about places like Georgetown where, like institutions have taken into account their own connection with the practice of slavery you know your home institution of harvard uh, recently wrote a report about this and maybe that's a window into a different conversation right not about the the first amendment concerns of the university's diversity interest but revisiting what was true before baki like this question of the legacy of slavery maybe even the legacy of that particular institution's connection to slavery and maybe that is a window into Uh, considering race in some way, combined with what Roberts is writing about, which is the applicant's personal experience and how they've overcome discrimination could be allowed. Like, what's your sense? Like, is there enough room there for something meaningful?
1: Well, so first thing is the question about whether race-blind is the same thing as race-neutral. They're not the same thing. And I think that Chief Justice Roberts made very clear in that opinion that requiring schools to not consider race as a plus factor does not mean that they need to blind themselves to an applicant's race. So, if you happen to be a certain race and you also happen to think that that's important to you and therefore important enough to write about in a college essay, you're not going to stop people from doing that, nor are you nor is the court saying that we're stopping schools from considering those essays in the full context in which the student wants the school to know about their life story. So that's a very, very important paragraph. I think for some people, they read that and think, oh, this is just simply a way of providing schools with a loophole to consider race. Instead of just thinking about it in terms of checking the box, they'll just read about it in an essay and go, oh, this person is Black, this person is Asian but i think that there is a a kind of you know maybe for some people a very fine distinction between saying we are giving an applicant a plus for their race as opposed to we understand this applicant to have a certain story and that story gives us a window into who they are as a person and what they can bring to this campus so a story about how you you overcame hardship in your life, in which one of those hardships was race discrimination, um, that would be completely allowable, first of all, as as something you could write about, but also at, for a school to consider that as one of the strengths of your application. Because according to the court, that's not just considering someone's race in itself, it's considering the their story of their race. Do we think that there's a difference between the two? I certainly do. The court does, but for for some schools, you know, we, we I think many of us who are in higher education have heard some admissions officers and some you know university admission administrators say something to the effect of, "Well, because of that paragraph in Roberts, we can just keep doing what we want to." Yeah, I, I do not think that that's the case. I think that they're going to have to do it differently. Um, it's not just going to be, "Oh, we're giving this person a plus because of their race." It's it's going to have to be, "Oh." We're giving this person a plus for the fact that they have shown themselves to be a resilient person, or a, a determined person, or a person who's over who can who knows how to overcome obstacles, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's like it's obviously higher ed is not a monolith. Like there are certain institutions that will probably narrowly read that or read that. I think the way that Roberts intended it to be read, and I agree with you. I've I've talked to a bunch of people already who um, have made the claim like, hey, like this gives universities what they need to continue going on the way that they have been. Yeah, and I wonder whether this will just lead to more litigation. I imagine it would if if the universities decide to continue on that path. But you had you know, you wrote something recently that at least suggests that there can be a I don't want to say better way, but there can be a truly robust reform to the way universities view the underprivileged that comes out of this decision that's perhaps long overdue. And I'll quote from this piece that you just recently wrote. You said, uh, the availability of racial preferences has enabled a tolerance of legacy preferences. Boosts for underrepresented minorities were in part compensating for boosts for others. For those whose goal is to achieve racial equality in admissions, the end of affirmative action may not be entirely bad. Among other things, it has revealed that the use of race as a factor was merely part of a larger system of preferences that knowingly shaped the racial makeup of classes. Out of necessity, admissions might now be transformed to address the inequalities that make racial diversity difficult to achieve and sustain. And this is kind of the is part of a larger piece you wrote about legacy admissions. And you know, you I talked to Richard Collenberg the other day. He he make he obviously is a you know a big proponent of this idea of using wealth and combining the um, account for wealth the lack of wealth and preferencing the truly underprivileged, and combining that with an end of legacy admissions could be a dramatic improvement on the system we have today. What's your sense? I mean, that the, there's so much, I think, haggling over the data. What's your sense about whether that's actually true or not?
1: There are many, many dynamic pieces to admissions. It's like a puzzle, or it's really more like a recipe, right? Where you have a little salt. You have a little sugar. You have, you have tomatoes. You have this and that. You, have, you know, and and the balance of it is tricky to get right because you want the you have a certain goal in mind, which is you have you, you you want a really great sauce or a great dish, right? But there are lots of different ways to get there, and I think that what we had until this decision was a certain recipe that was working for these colleges and universities in terms of balancing all of their different goals. They do want a diverse student body. They truly do believe that a diverse student body is beneficial to the educational experience that they are affording to the students who come there. They have to keep the lights on and they have to raise money, right? that These things aren't free. They get some amount of money from the government. They get a huge amount of money from donors. And you've got to make sure that an admissions is integral to the university's mission. And and that, of course, connects with almost everything else at the university, including fundraising. So there are many things you try to accomplish. And I think the recipe until very recently was a certain amount of affirmative action, a certain amount of legacy admissions, which also um, supposedly helps with raising money from the alumni. Because if you are one of the many, many alumni who graduated from a school and you think there is a chance that your, your kid will get at least a second look or a more careful look, if they're in kind of a, you know, a, the, the category that could be considered qualified, then you might, it might actually prime you to give more money over the course of your lifetime. And then there are these huge donors who, who give like, you know, who could give like, you know, tens of millions or hundreds of millions even and so i think there're just lots of different things and uh, legacies athletes affirmative action all of these things are parts of the whole recipe and now that affirmative action has to be eliminated it's really like the chef in the kitchen going okay what can substitute for this thing that i really valued and what has to you know what other ingredients have to be adjusted in order to to deal with that. And so that's why people have been looking at legacy admissions, because it is clear that even though you were getting a lot of racial diversity from the use of affirmative action, legacy admissions were cutting in the other direction in that there, um, a lot of the legacies, a lot of the alumni of particular universities, the really selective ones are mostly white. And so their children are mostly white. And so that means that you're getting a whole, a a, a kind of a Thumb on the scale, really, for white applicants using legacy admissions. And then you're getting the thumb on the scale for non white applicants using affirmative action. Now that affirmative action is gone, that now you know the balance is off. And so now you have to look at legacy admissions and go, okay, that tips toward white applicants. Maybe we need to dial down the amount of emphasis put on legacy admissions or eliminate it altogether. And some schools are going to eliminate it. We've already heard that Wesleyan, since the affirmative action decision, announced that they are no longer going to use legacy admissions. Will other schools follow suit? Surely some will. Others won't completely get rid of legacy admissions, but they will make it a less important factor. And maybe fewer applicants, fewer accepted applicants will be ones who are chosen from that legacy pool. So this is, you know, I think these are not about absolutes. It's just, it's, it's a matter of like playing with the formula yeah, until you feel like, you know, you're in a better place and it's going to take years. It's not going to happen overnight, but I don't think that what we're going to see is like, because affirmative action is gone, we're not going to have racial diversity at these schools. They will figure out how to do it in a way that is hopefully lawful, but that still accomplishes the educational mission that they are committed to.
0: Yeah, one thing I wonder is whether we get economic diversity, right? So I was looking at some of this data that Kallenberg wrote about, where he said that at Harvard and UNC, even within racial groups, you have an elite bias. So at Harvard, 71% of black and Hispanic students came from the top socioeconomic fifth. And at both Harvard and UNC, you're 15 they have 15 times as many wealthy as poor students on campus. And I think it gets to the question that I think has been animating the affirmative action debates for a long time, going back to that Baki decision. Whereas, like, you know, I, when I spoke to David Shaw a year ago, he, you know, he was there when the Baki decision was handed down and, and said, like, he was, he kind of had mourned for affirmative action that day, not this year. Because at that point, it became less about um, that legacy of discrimination and it just became about, diversity writ large and and racial diversity, right? And I think the story that the universities are telling themselves and have been telling themselves for decades now is that they're in the social justice business because of their commitment to diversity while they've been simultaneously been in the elitism business, you know, small class sizes favoring the the mega elite. And I don't think it makes them evil, but I do think they, they have opened themselves up to the conversation about well are you really thinking about even diversity the right way are you thinking about societal discrimination the right way do you even have any sense about the, the students you're bringing in and what their connection to the legacy you know of our societal's racial discrimination is like is that even a question you're asking because the supreme court really isn't hasn't allowed them to ask that question explicitly so i don't know like i look at this and i say well if the legacy practices start to fall uh, and we should get to some of the litigation around that because I find it's interesting. And perhaps some of these institutions start taking into account economics in a more robust way, even if it's in route to you know taking into account race. perhaps this is a better world. I don't know. Like maybe maybe it winds up being a better recipe to use your metaphor.
1: I think it'll take it'll take some time for it to all shake out. It's not going to be like we're going to see the results next year and then be able to, you know, come to a verdict on whether. Uh, getting rid of affirmative action had one effect or a different effect. It's just not going, it, It's we, we're going to have to be patient and figure out over the course of many years what the effect was because the idea of economic diversity or wealth, taking into account wealth inequality in admissions, if you talk to admissions officers, they will all tell you, oh yeah, we've been doing that. This is something we've done for all these years. And if we keep just doing wealth you know, taking giving someone a plus for coming from a poor family um, or not having had the same kinds of resources um, as many of the more wealthy applicants, or having gone to a school that is under resourced compared to some of the really wealthy private schools. You know, all of those things we have taken into account. All of those things, and we came to the conclusion that doing that is great, but it doesn't in itself help you. That much with racial diversity, we would still have a gap, a race gap, if we kept if we kept doing that. Now, I think that it's it's really hard to judge who's right about this because there will be people who tell you you can get all the way there or even more if you really took into account wealth gap, Um, and others who will say, oh, the wealth just doesn't get you there. You'd still have a pretty homogeneous racial population um, on these campuses, and. What I'm saying is I I think it's really hard for us to judge right now where we are because so much of what people are talking about, like when Harvard went into court and said, if we get rid of affirmative action, even with the boost that we give for wealth and poverty, even with that, we still would have what, what they said was less than half of the Black applicants who were admitted would be admitted. That's what they said. But they're just, they're thinking about it, and it makes sense that they'd be thinking about it as like, if we kept every single other factor exactly the same, if we kept all the parts of the recipe exactly the same, but just took, took out this one part, then we would see this drastic drop in these underrepresented minorities on campus. But that's not what's going to happen. Now that that one part, the affirmative action part, is gone, they will play with all of the other parts. And um, maybe they will give an even bigger boost for poverty or for being from a lower socioeconomic bracket than they did in the past. Maybe they will do even more on making sure that schools that are underfunded are like looked at much, much more rigorously to see if they can pull out from there applicants who are um, extremely promising and they'll give a bigger boost to that kind of thing. So it just, I, right now, it's really hard to know where how, where we're going to get, but I'm very confident that what we're not going to see is just simply what, you know, what people predicted.
0: Yeah. And, you know, one thing that worries me a little bit about this is, you know, you've done a lot of writing about the sort of origins of this holistic emissions process and about how it You know, it was born out of this desire to exclude Jewish students, among other things, uh, because the the sort of objective criteria were inconvenient for the uh, university officials. One thing that worries me a little bit is that we're we're moving back in the direction of increased weight to these holistic admissions processes. And I'm not sure that universities have earned the deference that would be required to do that well. I don't think that holistic admissions criteria inherently have to be used in ways that are discriminatory or that favor the elite, but there's a lot of data to suggest that they do. So there's, I don't know if you saw this work that Raj Chetty did recently in the Opportunity Insights folks, where they went through the different criteria that universities use to admit students, and essentially said, they looked at all the factors, GPA, standardized testing scores, letters of recommendation, what school you came from, et cetera, and found that basically every factor obviously is correlated with income. But the most strong correlations were coming from the letter of recommendations from guidance counselors and what school you came from. Uh, And even if you control for the kids with the same, uh, meaning what high school you came from, if you control for the kids with the same GPAs and Standardized test scores, the students who are coming from the elite private schools were so much more likely to get in. And so that like the way I read that data is to say, well, you get rid of some of those objective criteria. That's one less criteria for the kid who's in the, you know, traditional public school or the under-resourced public school. One less criteria they can use as a yardstick against the more elite folks, if that makes any sense.
1: It certainly does make sense. I mean, the SAT. Lots of people are against it, mainly because they think that it, it favors people who can afford tutors and SAT prep courses and on all kinds of things that are biased toward people who have more money to be able to prepare for for the test and then to have the you know wherewithal to you know stu- study for the test in a way that actually is you know designed to make your score go higher than it w- would others, uh, otherwise have been, and so. Some people are critical of the SAT for that reason, but what you're pointing out is that if you get rid of the SAT, what you have is a system in which the yardstick is much more likely to be even more dependent on the kind of cultural capital that you get by being from a really wealthy background and being sent to the right kinds of schools that train you to do the kinds of things and think the kinds of ways and and do the kinds of activities and leadership. And and write the kinds of essays that college admissions officers tend to think make you a really special worthy candidate who they should reward with admission. So this is this is a problem that's really it really gets the nub of the issue that whether you have the objective criteria which is you know the SAT or the GPA being important or put more more emphasis on the not as objective criteria but the ones that you know might allow say a really talented person who's not from the right background you think oh if you put emphasis on these more discretionary criteria you could you have more leeway to pick out those people who might not have as high SAT scores yes that is one possible result but the other possible result is that most of the people who have the kinds of qualities at the age of 18 That present themselves to admissions officers are going to have them because they've grown up in an environment of privilege that has trained them. Like, just it's in their cultural environment in which they grew up. They know the kinds of things to say and do, they know the kinds of leadership opportunities that they needed to seek out, they know how to write the kinds of essays or to have the kinds of thoughts and feelings that are considered to be worthy. So it may be even more of a biasing effect.
0: Yeah. I wonder, and it's obviously a cat and mouse game, but I do wonder whether universities, and I'm sure some are, should be taking more into account like the summer job. Did you work at McDonald's? Did you, you know, like these kinds of experiences that the older I am and the more I've hired people the more I start to realize the difference between different kinds of quote-unquote leadership experiences, you know? And like, you know, maybe the uh, volunteerism project shouldn't be rated over the after-school job at McDonald's, right? Like these, and maybe universities are better at this than they were when I was, you know, I, inevitably they have to be better because they were terrible about it back then. That maybe the, the game should change pretty dramatically to take that into account. Because, you know, I was a school principal in North Nashville. A lot of my kids would leave and would go straight to a, an after-school job and they somehow still get their homework done, still get really good grades, right? And that's that was like a remarkable thing, you know, taking the bus across town, working pretty late, coming back the next day. Like that shows something that a lot of the other things that show up on a resume today don't show. But I don't know. And hopefully we get there. But okay, I do want to talk a little bit about these legal challenges. There's the Department of Education Office for Civil Rights, open investigation into Harvard's legacy practices. Uh, there's other litigation in and around this about the sort of racial effect of legacy practices. I wanted to ask about your just, what do you think the chances of this succeeding are? Because from what I understand, they don't necessarily need to show the intention of discrimination. They can just show the disparate impact, but there are mitigating factors, right? Like they it's not just enough to say that there's disparate impact. Harvard could, could conceivably come back and say, well, we have like a strong interest in like maintaining the cohesion of our alumni base or something, and that could mitigate any damage here. But it is fascinating that this is the same title of the Civil Rights Act that was used in the affirmative action case. But do you think there's any chance of this succeeding?
1: Well, um, we haven't, of course, seen Harvard's response, but surely it will involve an accounting of all of the legitimate interests you know, substantial legitimate interests that a school like Harvard would have in preferring legacies or at least giving them some plus in the admissions process. Because even for legacies, it's not like, oh, your legacy you're automatically in. What they're saying is that this is one of the things among the many, many things that are considered about applicants. The fact that you have a parent who went to the school is like, you know, it's one of the, it's one, you know, one of the many things that we, we look at. And I think that for that, under Title VI, Title VI doesn't allow you to sue in court based on disparate impact alone. You have to show actually intentional discrimination under Title VI in in order to have a case in court. But Title VI, you, you, you can use it in this particular complaint that you're referring to, to file with the Office for Civil Rights of the Education Department to say the school is violating Title VI. And that's what they did. That's what the complaint says about Harvard that they're violating Title VI because there is a disparate racial impact, that preferring legacies actually harms racial minorities, including Black, Latino, and Asian American applicants, because they're much less likely than white students to have had a parent who went to the school. And the disparate impact argument, it seems powerful when you first think about it, that of course, because most of the legacy pool is white and, you know, I don't, I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but they're, you know, they're pretty stark that a fair number of the legacies, a really, really large number of legacies are going to be white, white students. Um, And so it seems like it has a disparate impact, but it's not, that's not enough to show that it's a illegal, a form of illegal discrimination. A lot of things in life have a disparate impact, as we know, but if the person who is alleged to be discriminating, or the entity, in, in this case Harvard, can show that they have a legitimate interest in legacy admissions, and then and they can show that it's not like a pretext for race, that they didn't decide to adopt legacy admissions so that they can keep out other people, people from racial minorities, then they're going to be okay. Surely it's not a pretext, because They've been fighting all this time for like nine years to to have uh, racial diversity through the use of affirmative action. I don't think they're using uh, legacy admissions as a pretext to keep out um, racial minorities. But whether the interests that Harvard claims, like for example, the cohesion among its alumni, maybe maybe it's fundraising, maybe it's that like that there's a lot of there are a lot of really qualified people in the legacy pool. Not surprisingly, because their parents went to Harvard, they've had the kind of upbringing that makes them very, um, you know, well educated, and um, they've had a lot of opportunities. And if they've made really good on those opportunities, then why shouldn't they, you know, be considered to be strong applicants to Harvard? All those kinds of arguments will be in the mix, and it's very hard for me to imagine that a decision maker, like an investigator in Washington D.C. is gonna sit there and go, no, those are all illegitimate reasons to prefer legacies. So I don't rate the success of this uh, very high.
0: What about the, uh, and there's, it, there's just been a lot of recent developments here, but what about some of the challenges at the the K to 12 level, like the Thomas Jefferson case? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you've kind of dove into that yeah. sort of set of data yet.
1: Yeah. The Thomas Jefferson case is a very important case. And the reason is that Thomas Jefferson did not, uh, that, that school, that's not a case about race-conscious affirmative action. That is a case about a race-neutral policy, as in they don't consider the applicant's race. In fact, the people who evaluate the applications in the Thomas Jefferson case at the high school, they actually don't know the race of any of the applicants. This is a race-blind. It's not only race-blind,
0: neutral. It's a race-blind policy. It's worth mentioning to the audience, just uh, p- pardon my interruption. That this is Thomas Jefferson High School in Virginia, uh, magnet school, that had historically had a pretty high percentage of Asian Americans. I can't remember what it was, but we did a segment on it, and we'll link to it in the show notes. And there was a change. You you might know this off the top of your yeah. head better than I do. Maybe I'll, I'll pass it to you. Yeah. Maybe give the context to yeah. what we're so talking
1: the, about. So the, the school had... Um, Something like, you know, over 70% Asian Americans made it into the school using their um, admissions process, which was some, you know, it, it involved test scores and it involved some amount of holistic review, not considering race, but some holistic review, essays, that kind of thing. And then they changed the admissions policy in order to seek more racial diversity, right? And what they did was they changed it so that the high schools in that district would get to send a certain number of students from their high school. Like So, so like the top of each of those high schools, um, like dozens of high schools in that district would get to send students to the school. And then the rest of the applicant pool would compete for the remaining slots using you know they would have essays and um, they got rid of test scores. So the challenge was that when they implemented this new policy, the Asian population in school went from 70 something percent to 50 something percent. So it was up something like a 20 percent drop in Asians. Now, mind you, this is still a process from the, the first one and the second one before and after that was not race conscious. They changed the race-neutral policy. And from one situation to another situation, you saw a 20% drop. And the so the, the claim was, oh, you changed this policy knowing that if you did change it in this particular way, you would have a drop in Asian Americans. That's the complaint. And so it, it just raises a really interesting question. And the question is, if you don't have a race-conscious policy, right, like the one that was challenged in the Harvard case, If it's a race-neutral policy, and in this case, it was a race-blind policy, but you change the policy from one situation to the next, and there's a big drop in Asian Americans, and you know that that's going to happen because the whole point of changing the policy was to seek greater racial diversity, meaning representation of more underrepresented minorities in the school, which is what happened, right? Is that a form of racial discrimination? Is that a form of intentional racial discrimination? And the court so far, you know, the Fourth Circuit said it was not. That is not a form of racial discrimination.
0: I was trying to find my notes on that case. One thing I remember, and you may know this better than I do because you love to dig into this discovery, was that Mm -hmm. there were some colorful, to be charitable, communications between the school board members that at least complicated the, at least the, the perception of that case. And if I remember correctly, some of the school board members were texting each other, acknowledging the racial impact, but in ways that may have bled over to something more. Um, do you remember this?
1: hmm
0: yes. It, it may be that those that don't have any legal relevance at all, but they, they felt to me in reading them at the time, and I haven't revisited them in a while, like the kinds of things that were relevant in a way that some of the admissions officer's communications were in the Harvard case and that like, they weren't like the slam dunk, but they were, right. they spoke to a mindset.
1: Yeah. So it's the school board that is making the decision about what the admissions policy is, right? So the school board members, so the communications between them would definitely be relevant to figuring out whether there was racial, racially discriminatory intent behind the policy change that they put into effect, right? So That's why the text messages are are there as evidence, right? So let me tell you what would actually show, like, I'll just give you a generic example of what would show an intent to discriminate. Let's say there was like a school board listserv and like you saw a whole bunch of school board members texting each other saying, look, we need to change our school board policy because there are just too many Asians we need to have fewer Asians in this school. And if we get rid of test scores, for example, I think that we will have fewer Asians in this school. Now that would be what we would call a smoking gun. Well, the text messages in this case were not that, but there were some text messages, some school board members texted each other um, and they were texting each other kind of um, one-to-one and they were saying, one of them said something like, I have the perception that there's been an anti-Asian feeling underlying some of this, hate to say it, LOL. And one of the other text messages said something about the superintendent of the county saying, you know, came right out of the gate blaming Asian Americans. The school board members, some of them text each other saying that his remarks were demeaning and racist. And another text message said, quote, Asians hate us. So now are those indications that the school board members actually wanted um, fewer Asian Americans at the school and therefore changed the policy to make that so? You know, that's a matter of interpretation. Ultimately, the, the court, the Fourth Circuit did not think that that was the case because those could have been text messages among board members who objected to the idea of reducing Asian American enrollment and saying something like oh there's been an Asian anti-Asian feeling underlying some of this and so it's it's not quite the the, the smoking gun. gun
0: it's not the sparse country uh, communications <laughs> from Harvard yeah i think like part of it it depends on your level of trust right when i when i read the quotes from dutta and some of the, the sort of asian american parents down there who've gotten up in arms, is they seem to think, and I, I don't live there, so I don't know what the conversation has been there. I can, I only read differing accounts. It was a really long education next piece that the, one of the parents wrote, or maybe two parents wrote, and it's complicated by some of the political affiliations by people and the, the sort of connection with the Yunkin campaign and all that. But people are entitled to affiliate whoever they want with politically. I found in reading it that there at least was this feeling amongst the uh, at least a certain subsection of the Asian American families down there that they felt like it was obvious what was going on here. And that's why I found that fascinating. And the reason why I find it particularly fascinating is I have this uh, this other show, this education show with this guy named Chris Stewart, who's a former school board member, where we talk about education issues. And he will say explicitly what would go over the line. He'd be like, look, we can't have schools you know, he's talking about Stuyvesant in this case, but he's like, we can't have schools that are 80% Asian American. We just can't have those. That's what he says. So like, my question is like, are normal people talking like this? Is that, you know, are, is this the tip of the iceberg for the school board communications? Maybe not because there already has been litigation that hasn't unearthed more. But if I remember the Harvard case correctly, yes, a lot came out at trial, but throughout the course of the entire process, more and more seemed to come out in that case. And the intense scrutiny, I think, unearthed a lot. But I don't know. Maybe it's just like, maybe this is it. And maybe then it won't, it won't do it. I well, don't
1: know. Well, he, here's where that line about admissions being zero-sum becomes important. It is actually just plain true that when you have a scarce resource, right? Not everybody can get in, right? Not everybody can, can get a spot at Harvard or at Thomas Jefferson or any, any other selective school. Mm-hmm. You're going to reject some people. And every person you admit, for every person you admit, there are going to be many people who aren't admitted um, and who've been kind of beaten out um, for that spot. And so when you have that kind of situation and you're looking at a school that is 70% of any one race, whether it's Asian American or any other race, right? And then you start thinking, well, we need a more diverse student body. It's not right educationally to have it be dominated by any one race, any move toward diversity will mean decreasing the number of the racial group that dominates that school. So whether it's like, if it was 80% um, white and you wanted more racial diversity, you're gonna need to reduce the number of white people to get that. If it's 80% Asian, you have to reduce Asian Americans to get more diversity. So every time you start talking about diversity, in a situation where what you mean is you need people of other races to become more populous within that population, it has to reduce the other races. It has to. That's just the reality of the situation. So how do we know when seeking diversity is the same thing as discrimination against the group that has to be reduced in order to make room? because the bottom line is if it's going to be 70% asian that 70% is not going to be some other race and therefore it's going to be reducing the population of the other races so i this this, this reality of the zero sum nature of admissions and not just admissions but any situation in which scarce resources uh, have to be distributed among people who are competing for them you are going to have this question and so ultimately we we're going to have a lot of difficult debates Litigation and arguments about what it means to seek diversity and how that relates
0: to discrimination. Part of this is the politics of it, too, right? It's like if you're going to, let's pretend it's 20%, I forget what the number is that Thomas Jefferson decreased its Asian American population after this policy was implemented, but let's say 10, 20% or whatever. There's That's 10 to 20% parents that, uh, or at least of Asian American families that are, that are going to demand an explanation. And the politics of that could be very explosive. And this is where I think the, there's like the legal interpretation of text messages, like the ones that were out there and some of the, the behavior of some of these school board members, not just in Thomas Jefferson, but there's been a couple other school boards that I've, I've interviewed some of them, like the San Francisco School Board in a different context. I interviewed their chair, who was, that's an interesting interview, but I think that this is where leadership is as, like the, the competent leadership is as important as ever, right? And this gets to Harvard's handling of this case, it gets to Thomas Jefferson, it gets to the San Francisco school board. You need to be able to go to these parents who are the losers in this new calculation and, and explain to them exactly what's going on. And sometimes I feel like our leaders don't always pass that test, you know? Because it's one thing to change the policy, it's another thing to do it in a way that's a little bit opaque and, leaves room for people to feel like there's some kind of grand conspiracy against them. So I don't know. I'll get off my soapbox on that one. I have one last question for you on this litigation front, which is the private sector cases that are starting, like that Edward Bloom and and others are starting to cook up against companies who have diversity policies and, you know, different provision of the Civil Rights Act, but essentially the same structure. Uh, Do you think that these have legs?
1: Well, it depends on a few things. One, how much are the courts going to be eager to apply what's just happened in school admissions to other institutions in society, including employment and you know, contracting. Contracting is is the one that right now some of these lawsuits are focused on. So practices like having preferences for giving out certain benefits like, you know, a contract or a fellowship or, you know, special, like things that are set aside for underrepresented minorities. So the lawsuits that I, I've seen recently from Edward Bloom involve a company that has a policy that favors um, giving out contracts to black women. This is the one you're talking about, right?
0: Yeah. I think it's the Atlanta, the Atlanta VC firm. Yeah. Right.
1: Exactly. So the idea is you're you're gonna be you're gonna f- look at the race of the people applying, and the VC firm is going to favor black women over other people who want that resource. Um and then in, in another lawsuit that was just filed, I believe today, some law firms are being sued by Edward Bloom, Bloom's organization because they have fellowships that they specifically um, have for underrepresented minorities who are like law students who they're trying to encourage and recruit to join these kinds of big law firms. And so the idea is that, that these are unlawful under the civil rights laws, these practices. Well, for a long time, employers and all kinds of institutions said, well, we can prefer or we can prefer underrepresented minorities. We have to think about diversity and we can think about race and consider race and who we hire and promote and, and things like that. And how do we know that that's lawful? Well, it's because of Grutter versus Bollinger, which was the affirmative action case involving the University of Michigan from 2003 that said uh, use taking race as a, a plus factor in admissions for the University of Michigan Law School, that that was okay. That was lawful. And so a lot of employers are pretty much relying on these school admissions cases and a lot of companies in setting their diversity policies. We're using using the affirmative action case from the Supreme Court to say, that's how we know that what we're doing is okay. So now that that case has been knocked out and we've got SSFA versus Harvard, where does that leave employment? Where does that leave preferences in contracting, where you're like, I really want to have a diverse um, set of employees, or I want to prefer Black women because they're really underappreciated, under-resourced, underserved, and so Black women are the group that uh, that we're going to prefer. Like, where does that leave those practices now that you can't point to Greta versus Bollinger? We don't have a clear case on the books from the Supreme Court saying those practices are okay. So that just leaves open a huge field for litigation. And I think that those are arising not under Title VI, right, which is about, you know, any institution that received federal funding, but it could arise under Title VII, which is about employment discrimination. You can't discriminate against people based on their race. Or the Civil Rights Act of 1866, and there it's a little complicated because right in the, in the late 19th century. Freedmen's
0: Bureau, right? Yeah, it was very, it
1: was, it was clear that those laws did permit the special treatment of people who had previously been enslaved, in order to help them to become integrated into society and to compensate for the disabilities that they had suffered previously under a regime of slavery. And so, when you have that history associated with a statute, what do you do with it in the 21st century? Does that mean that you can't consider race at all and prefer people um, based on their underrepresented racial status, or does it mean that it's perfectly con- consistent with that? So I think that it, it'll be an interesting and it'll be have, have a lot of jurisprudential
0: implications. A lot of circuit activity, I imagine, for a, a while. lot of
1: yeah, a lot of activity, and then it'd also be about like, is it about the words of the statute? Or is it about the intent behind the statute? There'll be a lot of uh, debates among judges about, like, how do you interpret a statute? Is it a, Do you take into account what it meant at the time, what reasonable people thought about at the time? Because, interestingly, in the affirmative action case in SSFA, Justice Thomas's opinion, when he was addressing um, these kinds of issues at the time, you know, very shortly, you know, before and after the 14th Amendment was ratified. He seemed to think that preferring, if you were giving a preference to freedmen, you know, formerly enslaved people, that that was race neutral. He thinks that that is race neutral because having been previously enslaved is not a racial classification. Now, many of us may think that's weird and absurd to think the status of being previously enslaved is not a racial classification, but he makes that argument with a straight face. So I think that we're going to see some very interesting judicial opinions coming out of this set of issues.
0: And the the sort of these EOC offices—I think we call it the EOC in New York—but these Equal Opportunity offices that are set up in a lot of cities and states to deal with claims of discrimination, statutory claims, and constitutional claims, are now being utilized by conservative activists, which I find fascinating. Now, like if somebody were to say to you, "Like there's an EEOC complaint against you," they tend to have one. Sort of thought about it, right? It's discrimination against a person of color, right, in your workplace. But you're now starting to see EEOC complaints on behalf of white people, Um, and this seems like a relatively new phenomenon to me. Maybe it's not, but um, you're starting to read about these more and more.
1: It's not that new. I think that it has been relatively like a standard kind of EEOC type of complaint for for decades. And and you have to remember that Clarence Thomas was the head of the EEOC. (laughs)
0: It's a wild thing to think about. That was, you know, that
1: was the major job he had before. Is that uh, where Anita Hill was, right? Yes, exactly. That's where he, that's where he worked with Anita Hill, um, was her boss there. So these kinds of claims, they are rather common. And I think that now they will become even more, more so because of the high visibility of the SSFA case.
0: Well, Jeannie, thank you so much. Uh, super illuminating conversation. Check out uh, Jeannie's work at The New Yorker. We'll link to her page there. She's been writing a lot about education issues, but also recently about the uh, one of the Trump cases. Uh, and so, you know, one, one day we'll ask you about that, but that's a whole <laughs> other conversation. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks, Ravi.